Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you. Gone through cold this week and now a little bit of warmth. And we are grateful for that, Lord. We're grateful for warm homes and warm clothes. You know, there are people throughout the world who don't have either. And so, Lord, we often take it for granted, but we are grateful. We pray, Lord, you be with those who are uh, sickly right now, who are ailing. We pray for the Roberts and the Forbats and, um, and others as well, Lord. We pray that you would grant them to bounce back. We pray for all of us that you would preserve and protect us as well. We ask you, Lord, to help us as we uh, continue to work through this class and give us, um, give us a lively discussion, enjoyable time together, but also that we would gain and grow from it, not just head knowledge, not just facts and data, but um, in places, Lord, things that are really important that would grab our hearts and prepare us for worship even. All these things, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're getting ready to start class. And so this is that stick that I put out yesterday or this week on Facebook. If you wanted to look at it, somebody said something. But I'm going to put it over here by Alan so that way Alan knows to behave so it's closer to him. All right, because Stephanie was shaking over here. She was like, don't intimidate me. All right, so we're uh, doing this class. Why do you do that? And we're covering... These are just broad categories, but after asking people questions, these were kind of where everything fit into. Worship, church government, complementarianism, who is John Calvin, catechisms, and church membership. And so, um, and if you have questions, and some still are, at, are uh, telling me some things or giving me some uh, questions uh, as we go along. And so I'm in court, trying to fold them in there as we go. And so um, I'll show you, we're going to have a change here just a little bit. But the purpose of the class, first off again, as I mentioned last week and the week before, is to exhibit to those who are unfamiliar with Presbyterians that we have biblical reasons to do what we do. And so even if they're unpersuaded at the end, what I hope for is they'll walk away with a thought of, well, these people are really trying to be faithful to Jesus and they're committed to Scripture. And if that's how they walk away, then I feel like we've succeeded. But also for the rest of us, for all of us, remember that we're about making disciples. And I think we have to keep, you're going to hear me say this every day, every time we do this class. We have to remember the faith is not meant for us to keep for ourselves and hoard and hide for ourselves. It's meant for us to pass on, right? So Jesus' great commission, um, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them, right? And then Paul tells Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, passing it on. So Paul passed it on to Timothy. Timothy's to pass it on to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The faith is always meant to be passed on. We have to be uh, a passing on kind of people. So that's the yeah, second reason for this class is to help all of us to pass on these things. So we've uh, looked at the regulative principle of worship, and all this is online, by the way, uh, the recordings are. The regulative principle of worship, we looked last week at united prayers and responsive readings and the employment of our bodies in worship and prayer. Today we're going to do creeds and robes, and I realized after, on my way here I should have inverted this and done robes first and then creeds, but here's how it's going to come. So that's where we are. Oh. And we added, because somebody asked, we added this category. We're going to look at that one next week, liturgy. We'll talk about our church's liturgy and why we do what we do in that regard. And so I thought that was a good, a good one too. So that's what we'll do next week, assuming I make it through this week. 
It's okay. It's okay. So, let's begin with this. What is a creed? Yeah, it's a statement of faith, but is it just a statement of faith? Is it, you know, is there something else behind it? What is a creed? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I'm sorry? What you believe? Oh, interesting, yeah. Very good, yeah. Agreed upon what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? So very good, very good. Okay, so here's for Macmillan. If you go, or Merriam-Webster, you go to Merriam-Webster Dictionary Credo and you'll find out. What is a creed? Credo, that's the Latin word, comes straight from the Latin word meaning I believe and is the first word of many religious credos or creeds such as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed but the word can be applied to any guiding principle or set of principles. Of course, you may choose a different credo when you're 52 than when you're 19. But here is the credo of the writer H.L. Mencken, written after he had lived quite a few years. I believe that it is better to tell the truth than to lie. I believe that it is better to be free than to be a slave. And I believe that it is better to know than to be ignorant. Just a simple, I guess, definition and an illustration of that definition. Creed is from the Greek, the Latin word credo, I believe. So it's an I believe statement. So it is a statement of faith, but it's actually meant to be done in a way that you can say, I believe this. Okay, so it's actually, there's almost a declarative aspect to creeds. I think is what you could say. So any, any questions before we get into some biblical examples of creeds? All right. So we're going to do some biblical examples of creeds and part of the reason why I'm doing this is because, as you probably heard, and uh, I used to say in a specific denomination or a sect that I was in, no creed but the Bible, right? And that already is a creedal statement, even though I didn't say I believe. That's what I'm believing, right? Okay, and so, uh, but there are creeds in Scripture. So can anybody quote Deuteronomy 6, verse 4? Yeah, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, okay? And that just that statement, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and that's exactly how Israel and, and uh, since then, Judaism has used that as a creedal statement. It shows up in their synagogue services and so forth. It's a creedal statement. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Almost, not quite the same, and so I don't, not demeaning the statement, but almost like an Islam, uh, Al-Akbar, right? right? That's a creedal statement. Okay, but here you have in Scripture, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. So let's go to Matthew chapter 10, 32 through 33. Let's go to Matthew 10. This is not a creedal statement, but it's actually a rationale, but it, it, it goes into creedal statements. So somebody read for us uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Yes, Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Somebody read that for us. Is that me clicking? Okay. So notice, what does our Lord say about acknowledging Him? 
or not acknowledging? Huh? Yeah, if you don't, he won't. If you do, he, he will, right? So there's a, there's a uh, even though it's not a creedal statement per se, it actually in its own way begins to lean in that direction in the New Testament. Acknowledge me before men. So whatever we do that publicly acknowledges Jesus before men, okay, is extremely important. All right? So let's go to an example of that in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And notice how Paul puts the words here. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Somebody read that for us. Okay, so what does Paul say uh, about Jesus as Lord? Yeah. So notice that. There's actually a, a, there's actually a biblical command to state a creed, have a creedal statement. Jesus is Lord. That's a creedal statement. I believe Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord. He's the Lord of all things. And so that's a biblical command or directive for a credo statement of some kind of faith specifically in Jesus. Right? Do you agree? Everybody agree with that? Okay. And so I love the way that Paul puts it when you get to verse... Um, it's not just believing that, not just say with your mouth that you, that Jesus is Lord, but also believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There is a relationship between those two, all right? Because if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then what kind of backbone do you have to your statement, Jesus is Lord? There's nothing. He's just another dead man. So for him being raised from the dead is the evidence that he's the Lord. And we'll get to a, a passage here in just a minute probably that will actually lead into that better. But, but then he says in verse 10, the heart, with the heart one believes and is justified, is declared right with God, and with the mouth confesses, confessions made to salvation. Of course, somebody will always say, well, what happens if somebody is deaf and he can't, or, or is unable to speak? You know, There's different ways of confessing with your mouth, right? American Sign Language, things like that, right? So we can't be um, rigid literalists on some of that. All right, so here's another one. 1 Corinthians uh, 12, verses 1 through 3. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. Who will do that? 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. Okay, David Forbath. It's interesting, what, is, what does Paul make as a mark, demarcation line as to whether one has the Spirit or not? Huh? Yeah, a confession, right? A public a statement of, of who Jesus is, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an open confession of faith that distinguishes that, okay? And I find that interesting, that that's very helpful, that there, even in Scripture, there is actually... Uh, uh, not only a mandate or a, a directive to actually give a 
statement of faith, there's also an example of how you know someone is filled with the Spirit. Now, you may, we may, may want to argue about certain things, but, but it's, it, has, it revolves around what is said with the mouth, okay? That public statement of faith. And so that's very important. So those are just some examples of creedal statements. Um, any questions or any, any thoughts before we move on? Yes. All public. Yes. Okay, I'll tell you from my experience. Okay, so being in a specific sect that was started by Alexander Thomas Campbell. <laughs> All right. They came from Presbyterianism, but they no longer wanted to be Presbyterians, and they said creeds divide. All right. And so all of their all of that whole stream followed that path that creeds divide, and that became very popular amongst other groups to say the same thing, creeds divide. And so they became... Um, sure, right. Well, and that's what I would say is that creeds actually do divide, they divide humankind. They don't divide Christians. All Christians... All Christians, even if they don't, uh, don't want to say the Apostles' Creed, agree with the Apostles' Creed. It's the Gospel. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. And so it divides Christians from non-Christians. So creeds do divide, but they divide in that way, not necessarily within, with, amongst Christianity. Okay? Great. Yes? Yes, we're gonna, we'll get to that in a minute, but very good. Yeah, yeah, very good. 1 Corinthians 15. Keep that in mind. We will come back to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3 in a minute. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's, there's actually a, a decent warning in that statement, right? Don't, we don't want to be saying these things as wrote in the sense of mindless, okay? Um, we... That's why I try to emphasize that, and Wes tries to emphasize that. We do our confession of faith to say, this is what we believe. Let's say it. Let's say it boldly. Let's say it realizing we're evangelizing while we're saying it. I mean, so trying to help us to remember, oh, these are not just words of, you know, ink thrown on a piece of paper, right? This is meaningful. We want to say it meaningful. We want to, we want to, because we believe this is meaningful. Does that make, so I agree in that sense, but you're right. That's a, not a necessarily legitimate reason. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Earl, would you do me a favor and close that door to the kitchen? Thanks. All right, so 
So creeds then are core or crucial concepts formed as I believe statements. Okay? And that's just what they mean, what they are. And so in American society, what is a central creedal statement? Oh, there's that one, in God we trust, as we put it on our coins. What's another creedal statement in America? Pledge of Allegiance. I just did, in fact, as I was thinking about it, I went and looked it up. And when, of course, you know, the, the evolving of the, the um, Pledge of Allegiance began as a very simple statement, I believe, in the, or whatever it was. I, I pledge allegiance to the flag, whatever. And it was very, very narrow. And then it began to evolve. There was actually hand, hand movements that went with that. So you started out with a salute, I believe, or, or I pledge allegiance to the flag. And then as soon as you say, I pledge allegiance to the flag, you were supposed to put your hand out, right? Because it's my flag and it's my nation, but just this hand. And then later it became this. It was very interesting, the, the, revolving, the evolving of it. But, but yeah, there you go. And so I always remember in uh, the uh, Olympus, uh, Olympus Has Fallen, or is that, was, that was the name of the movie? Yeah, was when the Secretary of State is being hauled off by this terrorist, this North Korean terrorist, I think it was, and she's being dragged by her hair as she's going out to be martyred for the country. What's her statement of faith on the way to martyrdom? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And I thought, what a powerful picture. It's the wrong thing, but what a powerful picture. I'd rather, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, wow, it was a powerful picture. Okay, so yeah, we have creedal statements in our country. So what are some places in a normal worship service? Don't think of ours, just think of anyone you've been to. What are, because we're not normal. No, no, that's not what I What are some places in a normal worship service that are full of our statements of faith and that are presented in unison. Yes, hymns. Never forget that. I told you last week, that was a, a moment of a kind of a aha moment when I was in this church. No creed but the Bible and we're singing these hymns and these are things that I believe and we're singing them together and they're written out and they're formulaic and all that. And I went, wait a minute. You know, it was a great moment. So that was my my uh, the beginning of my demise in that denomination. So. What I do? Yeah, okay. I'm pushing all the wrong buttons here. I was pushing the, I was pushing the, the laser button. Sorry. So, what are some examples of gospel-shaped creeds that clearly show that this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Let me, since how we've asked that question, let me give you some examples. I want you to notice the gospel patterns here, okay? Um, that are really, really important because we're going to answer this question, okay? I want you to notice a gospel pattern. You can just look at Acts 10, verses 34 through 43. This is Peter preaching at uh, Cornelius' house. There's all these people. Here's this Roman centurion, probably a retired military guy, but he's got his crew with him there. Got his family and neighbors there. Peter comes in to preach. And what do you notice about Peter's sermon in Acts 10, 40, uh, 34 through 43? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And God is involved in human history and brought his son Jesus. And then he goes through all the different aspects in a nutshell 
of what Jesus did. He did all signs and wonders and this and that. He was crucified, he was resurrected, and so forth, right? And, and through him comes forgiveness of sins and so on. So there's that gospel pattern. If you go through Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 36, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and then Acts 3, verses 12 through 26, his uh, sermon at the temple after healing the man who'd been lame for quite a while, um, you know, where he says, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give unto you, and then he raised, pick him up, and then he started preaching. And then in Acts 13, when Paul is preaching his first recorded sermon, where he's preaching, if you follow through, not only is there, there's lots of quotations of Scripture, because they're normally talking to Jews, um, but it goes through what God has been doing in the past, and then it comes to Jesus, and it talks about Jesus, and unpacks who Jesus is, what He has done, and His doing, and so forth. It's very gospel-shaped, okay? So, I mean, that's what the gospel is. So you've got to remember that. That's what the gospel is. It's really all wrapped up around Jesus. It's not about... It's not justification, though justification flows out of the gospel. I actually heard a preacher one time say the gospel is justification. It's not justification. The gospel is Jesus, who He is, what He has done, His doing, will do for His people. All the way through, when you see the gospel proclaimed, that's exactly what you see. Okay? So here's another pattern. Here's a gospel-informed pattern. So let's all go to Ephesians 4, 1-6. through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I want you to notice, I, I'm going to read this, these six verses, but I want you to notice when Paul shifts into a formula, and the formula, how, how much does it relate to the gospel? Here we go. So he's talking about Christians here. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The calling, by the way, is unity within the church. That's why he goes on to say, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were all called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, etc. Did you hear Paul shift into a formula? Very formulaic statement. What was the formulaic statement? Yeah, yeah, the ones. There's seven of them, which is interesting in and of itself. There are seven ones, and it's very formulaic, right? And it's interesting if you take that and you look at the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, if you take Ephesians 4, uh, 4 through 6 and you turn it around upside down, put the Father first and work your way through, you'll notice the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed work through that formula, okay? And it's very much about the gospel, okay? Just a nutshell, but there it is. David, did you have something? You just raised me, okay. All right, that's no, no problem. So let's talk about the passage that Cindy mentioned, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Just for time, let me just, I'll just go ahead and read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance 
What I also received, notice the passing on here. I received it and I passed it on to you. Here it is. Now see if this doesn't sound like it's formulaic. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You hear it? Okay? And so that's of first importance. And notice how the central centerpiece is the gospel. Okay? Oh, so let's go back to our question then. If I can get back there. So what are some examples then of gospel-shaped creeds that clearly show that this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints? That show the gospel's at the heart of what we believe? What are some, what are some gospel-shaped creeds? Anybody? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Moose? Yeah, yeah. So that, that pattern, right? So what are some creeds that you know by chance that are gospel-shaped creeds? You know they are, and they show... Somebody mentioned this already earlier. They show that this is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Yes, the Apostles' Creed. Lee mentioned it earlier. We say this and we realize this is what we as Christians have believed from the beginning. right? And it attaches us through the centuries all the way back. right? And you can see it from the Scriptures. And then you begin to find out that in early church history, there were, there, were, there were different versions of the Apostles' Creed early on, but they all basically stayed in the same area, and then it became pretty well standardized to what you have, what we use as the Apostles' Creed. And so there's this long connection. This is the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. I believe it. That's what makes us a church. Jesus makes us this church, you know, and we're attached to the church of Jesus Christ all the way through the centuries to the very beginning. Does that make sense? Okay, what is, what is another one? Yes. Nicene Creed. Some do, yeah. Some do. Um, no. Not necessarily. It could be. I mean, if you want to make that, I mean, there's a way in which it can be. Yeah. I mean, I love the Luther, Luther's... I, well, I love Luther's short, small catechism because he actually unpacks the Apostles' Creed and it becomes creedal, right? I mean, it's really, so it depends on what you're looking at, but like the Westminster Shorter Catechism, maybe not. But the Heidelberg Catechism, the very beginning is actually a creedal statement. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both of life and death, I'm not my own. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, etc. So there are little things in there that can be very creedal and potentially so. And I think that the first statement question and answer was meant to be that way. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Very good. All about the Trinity. So, like we were looking at Ephesians chapter 4. You can't miss the Trinity involved in that formula, right? And so all that's in there. And so, again... You look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, very tri- Trinitarian. 
Okay? Very good. So Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. Here, we actually do some, a couple of Bible creeds and then the Heidelberg Catechism number one as part of our confessions of faith or our creeds that we rotate through over a six-week period. Okay? And those uh, scriptural ones are Galatians 2.20, Philippians 2, and Colossians 1 because they fit so well and they're all very, very, uh, in some way, very gospel-focused, okay? They're not necessarily uh, Trinitarian in and of themselves, like Colossians 1. You actually have the bigger context to see the Trinitarian part. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time you open up a hymn book, yes. That's exactly right. And if you don't believe it, don't sing it, right? I mean, it's a creed. Yes, David. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole other class I could teach. But it comes out of church history uh, when it was when it was later added to the Apostles' Creed. It comes, there's a there's a historical aspect to it. But how most most Reformed people have always heard that, even John Calvin and, and many others, is that um, is that as he entered into our condemnation, that's what hell is, cut off from God, right? So here he is, cut off for us. He has entered into hell. Yep, absolutely. Good. Yes, I would love for you to quote the Athanasian Creed. Nobody ever uses it except once in a blue moon somebody would. The Athanasian Creed is like this long, and it's very Trinitarian, very focused on Jesus, and it's almost non-creedal because of the fact it's just too long. Yeah. So when we do, when we do our confessions of faith, when we do our creeds, remember that they are... You are doing what Jesus said. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Right? So remember that. You are acknowledging him before men, but you're not just acknowledging before men. Honestly, you're acknowledging him before all the things that you can't even see. Angels, demons, whatever. You're acknowledging him before principalities and powers and rulers and heavenly places and all these other things. And remember, because they're gospel-shaped, when somebody's not a believer and they're sitting there in the pew and you say, I believe, you are an evangelist. We're an evangelistic church. We do creeds, yes. I mean, in the end, that's what we would end up having to say because the ones who disagreed were Arians who denied that Jesus was the eternal God and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what that is. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right, right, right. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, we were in Midland and we were part of the Ministerial Association in Midland. We went to a, we had one of our meetings at a, I don't, I'm not even going to tell you the name of the church, but we were having a, a meeting there and they told us, they were all excited that the local rabbi was going to come to our ministerial meeting. So we always had a little worship service at the beginning, but the rabbi didn't show up and we're singing hymns, uh, some hymns. And one of them was, um, I don't remember which one it was, Holy, Holy, Holy or something like that. And it gets into the Trinity. And as soon as the rabbi walked in, the minister removed that verse, said, okay, let's go to the last verse or whatever it was and dropped the Trinity part. And I was going, of all the times, we need to proclaim it. This is it, right? It was just heartbreaking. But so, so, um, so in some sense, you know, we want Buddhists and Hindus and whatever else to feel comfortable with us as they come, but we don't want them necessarily to walk away saying, wow, that was a nice service, and boy, that was just like going to an Amway meeting. We, just, you know, we don't want that. We want them to know this is a Christian service, and so that's another part of the confession of faith, which does the separating thing, right? Yeah. All right, anybody else? Yes. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. I've never even heard of it, yeah. Lots of little flashes in the pan that come blowing through, yes. Good, okay, so creeds. This is one of, that's why we do creeds. We're not doing it because of some old hangover in the sense of um, related to Roman Catholicism and stuff. In fact, when we say the Holy Catholic Church in both of our Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed, you'll notice that there are smaller C's it's the Holy Universal Church, right? It's not one denomination, one particular group. So, Randy? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's move on. You ready to move on? Let's talk about robes, clerical garb. So... Why do we wear robes? Somebody actually asked me this. Can you cover that? Because I want to know. Why do you wear robes? Okay. Yes, I will cover that. So, and this is going to be very, fairly short. Um, clearly, the priests in the Old Testament wore vestments in the sanctuary. They wore it in the tabernacle and temple area. Um, what they wore in the sanctuary was different from common garments. They made a distinction at God's direction. They made a distinction between the sacred and the secular. As it says in Exodus 39, 41... The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron and the priests, um, and the garments of his sons for their services, their services as priests. So there was that in the Old Testament. But obviously we no longer have a physical temple. We still have a temple and we have a priesthood of believers. So in one sense you can say we still have our priestly garb and that is, what is it that we're clothed in? The righteousness of Christ. So we do have a priestly garb, our high priest, right? 
but we no longer have a physical temple that requires a man, mandates clerical garb. But we do have examples that seem to imply that there were identifiable markers that distinguish rabbis. And so, let's do this. Let's go to Matthew 23 real quick. Come on. We should do sword drills. That would be awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. You're no help. With friends like Scott, who needs any? All right, Matthew 23. Just look at what Jesus says, and then we're going to talk about it very briefly and then move on. But um, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat to do and observe whatever they tell. So do and observe what they tell you, but do not do the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds... Notice, here's the motivation. You've got to keep the motivation in mind for what he's going to say next. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have no teacher, or you have one teacher. And you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one one instructor, the Christ, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what is Jesus actually targeting in what he's saying here? And I'm gonna let me let me tell you why I'm asking this, because the one who says, Do not be called rabbi, is called rabbi all the stinking time in the gospel. But what is he actually targeting? It's not the names, rabbi, father, whatever. It's something else. David? Yes, the lack of humility, the attitude. Hypocrisy. What does he say? They love to do these things to be seen by others. Okay? So it's not forbidding the things themselves. It's the motive that Jesus is targeting. I, mean, I think that's important to get in our heads because like when you go to Matthew 12 or Mark 12, I'm trying to do this fairly quickly here because of time. But in Mark 12, verse 38 and 39, Jesus says, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and so forth. I want you to notice, what's the physical mark that they are ascribed? Yeah, the long robes, right? They wore something that they wore that said, oh, there's one of the clergy. Okay? And so Jesus was not forbidding them doing that. It was the motive. They did it to be seen, you know, for the purposes of, as you mentioned, lack of humility, arrogance, and all those things. Right? So there is some kind of physical thing they wore. Apparently, Jesus must have worn something similar because every time he shows up in a synagogue, people say, oh, let's have the rabbi talk. There's some, something going on visually. It seems that that's the case. The same thing happens when you get to Acts 13. So look at Acts 13, verses 13 through 16. This is Paul and Barnabas. Acts 13, verses three through, or 13 through 16. 
Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went, from, went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Now this is, if, if, if this is Jerusalem over here and Syria, and this is Antioch, Antioch and Pisidia is way over here closer to Greece. Okay, so this is far away from where he's normally been. So he's not been here before. And so notice what happens. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioned with his hands and said, and then he preached the gospel. But it's interesting. They come into a place they're not known, and they're known as rabbis. They're known as preachers, right? There's something... Something that there's some badge they're wearing that identifies them as that. Now, what is it? Who knows, right? It could have been a stole, could have been the kind of robe they wore. I'm not making a strong, a hard, hard case, but I'm just giving you kind of a sense of um, that it's there in Scripture. There was some kind of clerical garb. Paul had no problems wearing it. This never mandated for clergy to, to wear something peculiar. Um, we dress peculiar enough as it is, but, you know, there's nothing in there to mandate it, but it is a permissible, an authorized permission, it seems, because they did it. Um, And so, think of this, it was part of the social, cultural practice to demarcate vocations, right? So you had guild clothing, like if you were a goldsmith or a silversmith, you had something something that physically and visually identified your vocation. You have all that all the time, right? We still have that even in our day, okay? What are some things that we do today that, uh, uh, that show um, what vocation someone is in? Yeah, when he puts on that robe, he is sitting as the representative of the law, right? And so, but when he takes it off, he's still treated with honor, but whatever he says really doesn't matter any more than what Bill Ruiz says at that point. Yes, huh? Yeah, academic regalia, yeah. Yes, policemen, doctors, nurses, and when noose, when noose, when noose, yeah, judge, jury, and hangman all in one, right? But when Moose is wandering around, if he's in civilian clothes, he still carries something that says, I am a representative of the law, right? I am a policeman. So there's still some visual demarcation. It's just not unusual, right? That's how you know. How do you know that Lisa LaRousse is a nurse? Yeah, when she's running around in scrubs or Caitlin's running around in scrubs, it's that visual aspect. We wear uniforms all the time, okay? And so that, that's going on even in the New Testament, and nobody's... Uh, Jesus, neither Jesus nor the apostles bucket, push against it and say, no, 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 it should be no, no visual demarcation. They just live with it, okay? And so it fits the authorized permission of Scripture. You'll have to go back to our first class where I dealt with that, which is, no, oh, here you go, which is noted in the confession of faith. Common to human actions and societies which are ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word. The Scripture doesn't forbid it, seems to allow it, and just leaves it that way, okay? And so, um, oh, before I go there, 
And so we wear the we wear the robes at specific times. We don't Wes and I don't walk around wearing robes 24/7. I mean, I know some traditions, the like in Eastern Orthodoxy, the priest will wear his vestments when he's at the sanctuary and the altar. But then when he's done and he walks away, he puts on a cassock or maybe just a clerical collar when he's out in the street, right? Either way, he's being known as a representative of Jesus in that sense, okay? And so we don't walk around with a robe, but through the week, sometimes you'll see, especially if you go to a hospital, if you're in the hospital, we will come see you. We'll be wearing our, our clerical collars because it's just a uniform. Remember that, that's how we look at it. It's just a uniform. It doesn't make either one of us more special than you. It's just declaring, here's our vocation. And I always laugh. What would happen if half the ministers in Oklahoma City wore clerical collars through the week? What would the temperature be like at Walmart? Right? I, I mean, I can tell you times walking around the corner when a husband and wife are fighting and as soon as they look up and I'm wearing a clerical collar, it's like, oh, honey, how are you? Right? It's amazing. It's just a uniform. Just like when Moose, if Moose walks in in his police uniform, I mean, he walks up here for vacation Bible school in his uniform sometimes, and the kids are like, whoa! They know exactly who Moose is, and it, you know, it's great. It just changes the temperature. So it's a uniform. That's all we, that's all we think of it as. That's the way it, it's being used in, even in today. So it's not anything special. Yes? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes, right. Sure, right. Right, 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 right. It can be, yes, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, Moose. It does, it does help. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. So it does cover up a lot of that, and so that way you can focus on, everybody can focus. It is a, it is a unique moment. It's not necessary to pull in D. Harris's statement last week. It's not necessary. You can still preach and all those things. I do it in the evening without vestments, okay, without robes, right? It's a much more intimate service and so forth. But it is, so when I do weddings and funerals, I don't wear my robe. I wear my, I just wear the clerical collar because of, very, it's just more pragmatics, but it has to do. But usually, funerals go from here to the to the graveside, and so instead of taking off the, I'm already in my clerical call. I can just go straight out there. It's amazing how often people know what I'm about. You mentioned is the representative. How often that's happened? I was at a hospital in Midland. Was sitting on the elevator. Was wearing my clerical collar to go see one of our church members, and this Hispanic fellow jumps on the elevator, looks at me, and he goes, "You're a minister." I said, "Yeah." He goes. My wife's got brain cancer. She's dying. Would you come see her? Yes. What room is she in? 
And so I went to go see my parishioner and then went to see his wife. Got to go see her twice and lay out the gospel for her, right? It was a great honor. But it, was, it wouldn't have happened if I didn't have on some physical demarcation that says I represent someone else. I represent Jesus, okay? So actually, actually to your point, yes. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Right. Good. Yep, Cindy. Right, right. Yeah, this was, was mentioned about the judge. When the judge sits, it says the office is in play right now, right? So he's representing the law. Bill, was it you or who was it talked about? Yeah, David. So, I mean, this is exactly that kind of thing, right? So, like when we went to that adoption, when the Joneses adopted the kids and the judge was up there, um, you know, it was wonderful to hear the law and see the law pound the table and say, these kids are your kids now. They are now Joneses. You know, it was just touching, right? So it is. it does do that. Yes, it sets aside the office. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When they start shooting, there is no protection. I mean, the, the person they're shooting at, is, as Moose would say, is probably the safest, you know, because they're such bad shots. So, yes. Yes. All right, anybody else? I mean, so hopefully that helps when you think about roads and stuff. They're not mandatory. There is a biblical role where they play in the sense of uh, authorized permission. Paul seems to be doing that and so forth. It's just that authorized permission, but there's a value to it. Our particular tradition is the Geneva gown, which flows from John Calvin specifically, who uh, chose to represent the office of pastor with more of an academic aspect to it. And so he wore an academic gown, something that Randy mentioned. He wore an academic gown, and that became pretty much in Protestantism, other than uh, Anglicans and Lutherans, it became uh, the standard, unless you were in a black church, and then it was always white robes. I always loved that. They would wear white robes because it would, sh- you know, there, it, it wouldn't be just be one black monolithic person up there. I mean, there would be a breakup, and I, I loved it. It was always great, you know, to see that. But they would, they would often do white robes, and you'll still run across black churches that will, that will wear a different color robe and stuff. So, there you go. Any questions? Yes. 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 Most of the time. Uh, I mean, it might be preference, but there is a purpose. I mean, if you, as you listen to the hymns, 
I mean, there's a story in a lot of the hymns. I had somebody, in fact, we were in Midland. I had somebody one time started coming to our church, and they'd never sung all the hymns in a hymn. And they were doing it in Midland, and all of a sudden they went, hey, there's a story in that hymn. I've been singing it for 30 years and didn't realize it because that second or third verse or whatever was always, you know, skipped. And so it's, there is a flow, and so seeing the flow and actually learning to, to, to sing it with that in mind. So you think about holy, 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 as you work through holy, 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 you've got, I mean, it's dealing with some heavy theology, one right after the other. And so, yeah. So it's some of it sort of preference and sort of not. I mean, sometimes the last hymn, we'll skip maybe a verse because you have a long-winded preacher and it lasted for, you know, who knows. Yeah. Yes, right. Amen. No, no. But it's for all kinds of reasons. Glenn. You'll have to hit me up later. I don't have it. And sometimes, you know, like some of them uh, actually will skip them because they, the middle two verses maybe have been added by someone else later. And I'll try to stay, like we did this during the Advent season, I'll try to stay with the original two verses. For example, a Charles Wesley hymn, he, he did the first and the last verse, and then somebody 100 years later added two verses in the middle. Sometimes that'll work, but, but, um, but we like to sing all the verses. Yeah, it's great. And especially if you start thinking about the hymns have a story in them. Or they're developing a theme. And just follow through each verse and see how that fits. Does that answer your question? Great. All right. Anybody else? Yeah, the three stripes. And they get real fancy. They'll wear the hood. But that gets... That gets the sound a little highfalutin in there, let me tell you. So, I don't wear the stripes of mine. Yeah. So, James, D. James Kennedy used to wear his with the doctor stripes. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pray. Uh, this is next week. We're going to actually look at the service itself. Why did we do that? Uh, the liturgy itself. Well, I'll probably talk about the colors as well. The 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 uh, the seasonal colors that we do on the pyramids and then the stole and so forth. We'll talk about them a little bit, but we'll do this one next week, liturgy, okay? So let's pray. Thank you, Lord God in heaven, that uh, we get to be part of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in our statements of faith, in our creeds. I pray for all of us that today as we say, we believe, or as we say, I believe, that Lord, we would remember that these are the things that saved us. What you did, that we're declaring These are the things that save us. This shows that we are saved truly by grace alone and Christ alone and received by faith alone. We pray, Lord, that if there are any unbelievers who happen to be in our presence or will be watching or listening at some point, that they will hear us proclaim the gospel in those creeds and they would come to saving faith. Lord, we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit and prepare us to enter into your great assembly to worship and adore you. In Jesus' name, amen.